Welcome to the Masters of Data podcast, the podcast that brings the human to data. And I'm your host, Ben Newton. More and more of our world today is being evaluated, analyzed, and driven by algorithms. You need to look no further than your car insurance, your kids' educations, or your mortgage to see the results of algorithms processing and delivering verdicts on you and your ability to do something that you want to do. Our guest today is Kathy O'Neill, a data scientist, mathematician, activist, and author of the New York Times bestselling book, Weapons of Math Destruction. She has spent years talking about the dangers of, as she calls them, creepy algorithms, and our need to take seriously the effects that they may cause, both to ourselves and those less advantaged. So without any further ado, let's dig in. Welcome, everybody, to the Masters of Data podcast, and I'm very excited to have Kathy O'Neill here with me today. Welcome, Kathy. Thank you, Ben. As we, we always do, we love to start off with just getting into your you know background. You've covered a lot of ground in your career and done a lot of different things, and I, I definitely enjoyed um, your book, which we'll, I'm sure we'll talk more about later, just seeing how you kind of progressed in your thinking, your experiences to go along. So I'd love just to kind of get into that here. So how did you become a mathematician? How did you get started? What kind of drove you that direction? Both my parents were mathematicians, so it's just kind of the job I thought everyone had. That's part of it. I loved math. I was very excited about the purity and elegance of proof, especially because like I grew up in Lexington, Massachusetts, and you know we were kind of part of the Revolutionary War, the history of that. And like every year in history, we were forced to go on the same tour of the same like Minuteman statue. And then finally, like in eighth grade, for the very first time, we got to talk about something besides the Revolutionary War. And it was like manifest destiny. I'll just, I'll never forget that (laughs) moment when I was like, wait, I can't figure out whether my teacher is putting me on about manifest destiny. Like whether my teacher believes manifest destiny was a thing that we were supposed to like, God wanted us to kill a bunch of Native Americans to expand our country or whether this is, you know, like what I realized at that moment was like, it's just messy. Like everything is messy and, and math isn't messy. Math is just crystalline and pure. And, you know, you say what you are assuming and then you go from there. And there was something incredible. Like I'm also just FYI, like I come from a long line of people that are on the spectrum. (laughs) So (laughs) it was like something very appealing about just this kind of system of consistent logical thought that attracted me. And so I was just like, I'm going to go find refuge in mathematics. And I also, you know, was talented with it. And in spite of the fact that I had a bunch of teachers that were telling me I didn't need to do math because I was a girl, like what I liked about it was, and by the way, many of those teachers were themselves female. What I liked about it is like, yeah, you might not have thought I was going to get this answer, but once I had the answer, it was irrefutable. So that was the other thing that was like, you know, once you have a proof, you have a proof and it doesn't matter if you're a girl. There were a lot of things that drew me to math. And once I was there, I was like, this stuff is awesome. So that's how I became a mathematician. I read an article you wrote about, you said about playing dominoes with your, with your dad, which I thought was really, really great. Just that imagery of, of you guys playing a game together and that just, you know, increasing your, I have a seven-year-old daughter and I just like that idea of, you know, how you're, you know, you were able to get that excitement about math from your your father. I thought that was really, that was really cool. The thing about math is that it's playful. You know, it can be, it's just a game. 
you know, a lot of math, at least in the beginning, is just even once you get quite involved in math, it, you can think of it as a game. You can frame it that way. And it's a puzzle and you can think about it and you can sleep on it and you can wake up and still not know it. And then like the next day you wake up and you do know how to solve it. And that's a very exciting moment. I went to math camp the summer I turned 15. And if I hadn't already decided to be a mathematician, I did that summer because I learned how to solve the Rubik's Cube using math. I was like, dude, this is it. How cool. <laughs> I never had the patience for the Rubik's Cube, so I, I admire that. But if you looked at it through the world of group theory, then you might have, is my point. Oh, I, yeah, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> Not only could I solve the Rubik's Cube, I could solve like any kind of puzzle of that type. It was really generalizable. It was neat. I would go into a puzzle store and like amaze people. It was like a magic superpower. <laughs> That's the thing. You get introduced to that at the right point. It really helps crystallize in that you're in your mind as a young person. I think that was, that's pretty cool. And it becomes part of your identity, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. And so you, you went on to school to study mathematics, right? Yeah. I went to Berkeley in part because it was, had a great math department, but in part because I wanted to like, I already knew I wanted to go to Budapest for this Hungarian mathematics semester, my junior year. And like Berkeley was the only college I could find in the country that taught Hungarian. Why Budapest? What was in Budapest? Well, I had met some really cool people who had gone to that program when I was in the math camp. I mean, it's like, you know, it was a society. I should say it was like a nerd society <laughs> that I was like very happy to be part of. What was Berkeley like? Berkeley was just wonderful. It was enormous, but I was lucky because I knew exactly what I wanted to get out of it. I wanted to learn math. I then became obsessed with African drumming which was also a big thing in Berkeley. And I was like, you know, like the class, I was really, really into it. And in a big place like Berkeley, you might think you could never get noticed. But if you're a student who's super obsessed with the subject, then it turns out you can become friends with your teachers, which is what happened with me. I was very lucky. And I sort of wormed my way into all sorts of math department parties where like there was actually a rule. One of the parties I went to, there was like a rule, no graduate students. But I got to go because I'm an undergrad. You know, like <laughs> there's no rule against no undergrads. It turned out the rule that existed that there was no graduate students was specifically made. And this might be a lie, but I like to believe it because like people would get drunk and famously say completely inappropriate things about their colleagues. And they didn't want graduate students to hear those things. <laughs> but there I was. I got to hear all of it. It was awesome. You know, it's funny you say with like the the African drums thing too. I was I interviewed a, a physicist and was talking about this, and I know I came from a physics background. A lot of physicists were musicians, and I'm I'm seeing Richard Feynman in my mind now. He was really into drumming, so there, there's sure. there's something about mathematics and music and rhythm oh, yeah. that they really fit well together. I was originally going to be a musician, by the way, so I have a connection to Richard Feynman. That my my cello teacher, who was married to my piano teacher, was also a drummer with Richard Feynman. So I actually met really? Richard Feynman growing up because I was taking piano lessons in that same house. Yeah, and it's it's not an unrelated issue, right? It, I was interested in this West African Ghanaian drumming stuff because of the polyrhythms. And it was like so fascinating to me that you could sustain two different kinds of rhythms in two different hands or different parts of your body. It really is hard, but it's also like very pure in the same way that mathematics is. Yeah, that's really cool. You enjoyed your time at Berkeley, and then you is that when you went out back to the East Coast to work? or? Well, I got into to say, I should mention that I went to Budapest, and I actually ended up hating the kind of math <laughs> that I learned there. And then a friend of mine sent me a book about number theory when I was in Budapest and like revived my interest in, in math and like 
ended up deciding to become a number theorist and got back to Berkeley and like met Barry Mazur, who was a famous number theorist at Harvard and decided I want to go to Harvard. I want to study with Barry. And that's what I did. Oh, okay. Right, right, right. And how was that? And so you got a degree in mathematics at Harvard as well? Yeah, my PhD at Harvard. And you studied number theory? Is that where you focused on? Or? Yep. And it was a really exciting time in number theory. Like when I was an undergrad at Berkeley, that's when Fermat's last theorem was solved. Oh, right, right. And I was like buddies with Ken Ribbett, who was part of that story, was in the, like the Nova specials. It was like, I was in a different, but also like more, even more exciting nerd society. At that <laughs> I, I sense this is a, is a theme. I mean, it's always about people, you know. The subject is beautiful, but like what makes it beautiful, what makes it exciting and important, of course, is how people think about it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, even with the nerdiest subjects, it's the, uh, it's the other nerds that make it more interesting. And you graduated and then you went on to Wall Street, right? First, I went to MIT for a postdoc for five years. Then I was at Barnard as an assistant professor here in New York. And then I was like, you know what? As much as I love number theory, which I do, I actually wanted like a little more interaction with the human race. And I just want to be part of the city. I love the city. I wanted to be part of the energy of the city. So it was 2006. I applied to and got a job at D.E. Shaw Hedge Fund. And I started it in 2007. And then like two months after I started, the credit crisis hit. At least it hit inside finance. It took another year for Lehman Brothers to fall and for like people outside of finance to see what was happening. Yeah, I, I definitely, when I was reading through that in a book, it was really fascinating to hear that from the inside view. I mean, what was that like going through that on the inside of that whole, you know, because most of us are on, we're on outside watching it and didn't, I don't think, I can definitely say I didn't really understand everything that was going on. What was that like? Oh, first of all, nobody understood what was going on, including from the inside, <laughs> just to be clear. And I, I think that was like the most impressive thing about it is that there I was, I was working on like stuff with Larry Summers, like who had, he'd been the president of Harvard, you know, he'd gotten famous for saying girls might just be bad at math. And I was working with him and I was like, uh-huh, uh-huh. And like, then the crisis hit and like, he didn't know what was going on and neither did anyone else. We were all just like, oh, something's happening. It was very much along the lines of like that picture. Everybody talks about blind men touching different parts of the elephant and trying to describe it. You know, it's like, nobody knew exactly what was going on, but Having said that, like the disillusionment that I felt personally by seeing just how confused and baffled everyone was, was like shocking. I was like, wait, I thought you guys were experts. I thought the economy was based on something real. I just became more and more like, oh, we're just all trying to make as much money as possible before we retire. It was disillusioning, to say the least. Yeah. There's a term that a guy that we were talking about earlier that I interviewed from uh, MIT, Dr. Rigobon, he uses this term aggregate confusion and that seems to kind of apply here. It's just, we get this, everybody starts to believe that everything's okay because everybody else says it's okay and nobody actually understands particularly what's going on behind the scenes and it just, it becomes more self-fulfilling over time until it all blows up. <laughs> yeah. I don't think the book has been written yet that needs to be written about it. Like, I, I want to say that like, Larry Summers, Alan Greenspan, those guys, they were economists and people trusted them because they were very arrogant, to be honest. They seemed to be in charge. They seemed to know what was going on. They didn't know the details of how the, you know, for example, the credit markets worked, how the credit default swap works, all the stuff that was over the counter. It was complicated and they didn't think they needed to understand it, but it ended up being pretty important in terms of how 
risk was being hidden by Lehman Brothers and other banks. They were like, oh, we understand it at a meta level, and that's good enough, and we're, we're happy with it. Turned out that wasn't good enough, and we shouldn't have been happy with it. But I just feel like that that hasn't changed at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm worried. I mean, between you and me, I've left finance. I don't know what's going on in finance. I'm worried. I'm no longer willing to trust a bunch of self-assured economists. Yeah. That is interesting that not a whole lot has changed. I mean, it's one thing that struck me too when you were describing this in your book, you talked about going and working on risk metrics, right? You you went to mm-hmm. a company that did that evaluated risk. And I remember it, it really struck me and I had to read it a couple of times that you kind of learned that a lot of you know, a lot of the banks didn't actually want to know the risk. Yeah, they don't want to know. To clarify my previous statement, like I don't think we're going to have another credit crisis because of the same exact thing. Right. I think like, oh, we learned that you shouldn't probably give shit tons of mortgages away to people that don't have jobs, you know, like that's probably not going to happen again. Exactly. But as you just said, like people don't really want to know what their risk is. You know, I mean, I'll go further. I think there's two different kinds of modeling going on in finance. This is a podcast about modeling, right? About data. There's the kind of modeling you want it to be right. And then there's the kind of modeling you want it to be wrong. When you want it to be right, it's like, oh, I want to predict the market. And if I'm wrong, I don't make money. So it's like about profit. You want it to be right. And then there's the stuff you want it to be wrong, which is about risk. You're like, I want to underestimate my risk because if I truly estimate my risk or overestimate risk, then I will make less profit. I like to slightly, if not completely underestimate risk so that, you know, first of all, I make more profit in good times. And second of all, so that my sharp ratio is higher and I can brag about it star ratio being just simply like profit over risk. And so there really is a deep denial of risk going on. And I don't think that's gone. I think the kind of risk, the particular kind of risk that we ignored running up to the credit crisis has probably been acknowledged and avoided now. But then there's other kinds of risk that we're just pretending doesn't happen because it's just inconvenient. Yeah. The traders, right, They their bonuses were, were based on that ratio you talked about, right? Yeah. There's definitely no incentive to get the risk right. No, it's fascinating. So you, you have these people that just went through all this, you know, the market just bottomed out and they're still <laughs> don't want to hear the bad news. They don't want to hear about the risk. And so you've already been disillusioned. You've got even more disillusioned uh, dealing with this, right? Well, yeah. I mean, in particular, the what I realized, you know, after trying to work on risk for a couple of years was that mathematical authority was part of this story. It wasn't just these particular economists who were pretending to understand stuff. It was also people pretending that math, you know, when there's a math model involved, you can trust it because math doesn't lie. You know, like, wait a second, we're actually building up models specifically in order to lie. You know, and as a mathematician, I still identify as a mathematician. Like, I'm ashamed of that. Yeah. That's partly what you started to then write about. You started a, a blog. Mm-hmm. You really started trying to shed light on this. What kind of brought you to that? When did you decide that that's, how did you decide that that's what you wanted to do? That you really, did you feel like there wasn't anybody making, there wasn't a voice out there really pushing this? Or you just felt so strongly about it that you just had to write about it? Both. And like, also I felt like good mathematicians were still being recruited into this field without any pushback. And I was like, let me be, that person that says to mathematicians, here's what's really going on here. 
So I originally started Math Babe. I was thinking my audience would be mathematicians who thought about going into finance. And I'd be like, let me explain a little bit of it before you could do that. And I wasn't basic, I wasn't really saying don't do it. I was saying you should be aware of a few things. Yeah. No, and that makes a lot of sense because, I mean, the, the thing that actually comes to mind is I was in grad school at the end of the 1990s. And I, like I said, I was in a physics program and a lot of physics is a lot of it's math, obviously. So a lot of us were, we loved math as much as physics. And a lot of people I knew actually went to Wall Street. And I definitely can tell you, nobody had any ideas. Definitely back then it was just like, well, if you want to go your math skills and make some really good money, that was a good place to go. And so I can, I can see how getting that information out there is really valuable to people that would be thinking about where they want to go. Can they make a rational decision, you know, based on understanding the the risks? Yeah. I mean, w- most of the people I worked with were physicists actually. Really? Yeah. A lot of them were Eastern European. A lot of them were string theorists. Yeah. As an aside, I, I think I'm, it makes me very proud to study physics because a physicist, uh, it's like a, it's like some sort of secret underground mafia that like get everywhere. We invented the internet, you know, we, in the mathematics, we did big data before anybody else did. So <laughs> that's true. That's true. Although different kind of big data, which we can come back to about, because there's a really important difference. I'll, I'll just say it now, which is that physicists, the kind of big data they've been doing forever, astronomy, especially like it definitely describes the past. It might even predict the future. It often does, but it doesn't change the future the way that Google's search algorithm does the way that Facebook's newsfeed does, the way that credit card companies who are trying to decide who's going to default, you know, do. They they don't just say, are you going to default? They decide who gets a loan. That changes the future as well as describes it, predicts the future. Yeah, well, I mean, that's, that's a perfect segue to talking about the book you decided to write, Weapons of Math Destruction. And I have to say, as an aside, based on the name of your blog and based on the name of this book, you do very well at naming things. I oh, just have thank to say you. that. <laughs> I should say that my friend Aaron Abrams, who's a mathematician, actually came up with the name for my book. It's literally like my favorite book title ever. It's pretty awesome. I'm writing a new book and I'm like, Aaron, where are the goods? <laughs> I need another title. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a, it, I mean, you can't forget that name. It's so memorable. So Weapons of Math Destruction, you're, you're writing about exactly that, is that these algorithms that are actually being used to have real societal impact. So, so talk to me a little bit more about that. I mean, how did you, what made you decide to write the book? What kind of was the journey to get there? I mean, we pretty much almost finished the whole journey. I, le- I left finance. I started my blog. I needed a job. I have three kids in New York City. So like definitely need a second income past my husband, who's a mathematician at Columbia. And I got a job as a data scientist very quickly once I decided to do it. And I'm there you know, working instead of on predicting models, I'm working on like predicting clicks in the context of travel, like Expedia, cheap tickets, orbits. And I'm starting to notice that these models, they're not exactly set up to fail like risk models are, but they are imperfect, deeply imperfect. And I, like many of the other data scientists I was talking to in other fields, we're basically using demographic information, like browsing, where do you live? Like, what kind of consumer are you? Other kind of behavioral stuff. I was deciding th- between the winners and the losers. And I was dividing winners and losers and scoring people, basically. How likely are you to be buying something? Therefore, we're going to give you this option versus if you're not going to buy something, we'll give you a separate option. And in the context of travel, it wasn't like a big deal, really. I was 
honestly, I was just deciding who got to see comparison ads, which is not going to make or break anyone's life. Never mind, not even their day, forget about their life. But other people I started to realize were using the same exact type of techniques to decide who gets a loan, who gets a job, who gets, how long do they get sentenced in prison? You know, like crazy important things about people's lives based on demographic data for the most part. And it was really troubling because I knew that what I was doing was not well done. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like I knew it was like, oh, false positives here, false negatives there, whatever. Better than guessing, yes. In some sense, it was not that different from what I had been doing in finance. But, you know, if you guess wrong 40% of the time in finance, you still make money. Right. You just need to be better than guessing. If you guess wrong with people's lives, it matters to them. And the worst part was like they didn't even know they were being scored. And that's what I started to realize. So I was like, wait a second. We are basically propagating past classist, racist, sexist, you know, divisions because that's how we're deciding who's lucky or unlucky. And then we're making lucky people luckier and making unlucky people unluckier. And that's what we're doing. And we're calling it data science as if it's got some kind of scientific authenticity, which we're not actually, but we're not making it into a science. We're not experimenting it where they're not checking to see that it's accurate. There's no sense in which this is deeply scientific or ethical or anything. I actually started blogging about my concerns. I remember my blogs were called like creepy algorithms and then more creepy (laughs) algorithms and then like a long list of creepy algorithms. And every time I had another blog post, my readers, which who were really awesome people, this was like the heyday of blogs when people really read blogs and the commenters were awesome. They were like, oh, have you heard about this? Have you heard about that? And I was like, oh my God, are you kidding me? So I had this long and growing list of scary algorithms that I suspected were being done with very little oversight and very little science and like lots of errors. On the other hand, I'd already been disillusioned in finance, as we've discussed. I realized that the credit crisis, even though it was horrible and it removed enormous amount of wealth from Americans, especially black Americans, had one thing going for it, which was that everyone noticed it happened. You know, everyone noticed and it happened internationally. Whereas I felt like the errors, the flaws and the suffering caused by the errors and flaws of these algorithms were going to happen under the radar. People would not see it happening. Individual people would not know it had happened to them. They would be denied a loan. They would not get a call back after applying for a job because of the application algorithm or what have you. They would just never know they were a victim of a bad algorithm. And it would happen to individuals in distant places in their living rooms. And I was like, this is a disaster because it's it's like a credit crisis or like a crisis that no one is seeing happening. Yeah. Put that together, I felt like the moral obligation to write a book about it. That definitely makes sense. And one thing too, taking a pause there, because I, I remember I've, I've listened to a couple other interviews you did, and particularly the word algorithm. I, I know definitely in the field I'm in, we throw algorithm, the word out a lot. And then, you know, definitely some people that are going to be listening to this is like algorithm, you know, nerd word. I don't understand what that means. So what is an algorithm when you define it like that? How would you define it? Yeah, good question. So when I say algorithm, I really mean predictive algorithm. If you just stripped it out to the word algorithm, a computer scientist would just be in like, process. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a predictive algorithm. So something that's trying to predict success using historical data. It's got two major ingredients. One is the definition of success and one is the the historical data you train it on. 
loosely speaking, and I think this is sufficient for anything I didn't discuss, look at initial conditions in historical data and you said, did this lead to success? Yes or no? And you look at all the initial conditions you have data for to decide which ones led to success, which ones didn't. And then you have, when confronted with a current set of initial conditions, you say, does this look like something that was successful in the past? Yes, then it's going to be likely to be successful. Or if this does not look like something that was successful in the past, it's unlikely to be successful. And you basically tag it with a probability of success. So you're just looking for patterns of what led to success in the past and then trying to propagate it into the future. A very quick observation about that is it's backwards looking. And so any kind of prediction of success in the future is going to assume it's going to happen just like it did in the past. And that's sometimes useful, but sometimes totally not what you want. Like if you're saying, oh, who's going to be successful at Fox News? Oh, like white guys. You know what I mean? (laughs) And then you're like, oh, who should I hire at Fox News for the future? If you trained it on the past, it'd be like, oh, more white guys. Because that qualified black woman who's just applied, definitely don't hire her because she does not look like somebody who was successful in the past. Like I'm just making an extreme example to make it clear that algorithms do not ask why was someone successful. They just fit patterns to success in the past. When you've talked, I mean, you know, after writing the book and you've did a lot of speaking and a lot of, you know, connecting with people that are kind of across the spectrum of understanding this, I mean, what, what were the examples you think resonated the most with people? So you gave a lot of examples in the book and, and it's definitely, it was a surprisingly easy read. I mean, even as like a background as a mathematician, it was, I think you did a really good job of explaining in terms that wide variety of people could understand. But what, what do you think were the the examples of those creepy algorithms, as you put it. I mean, what were the ones that resonated the most, you think, with people that you would talk to? Oh, it really depends on the audience. So you're going to have to be more precise than that. So, for example, you know, there was ones about you know, the teaching, I think, that definitely resonated. So maybe, maybe we could even start with that. I think some people have heard about how the algorithms were used to judge teachers in Washington, D.C. Right. I mean, among educators, definitely the teacher algorithm, which was almost no better than a random number generator, honestly, but was used to like fire people, especially fire teachers in particular, and was gameable. Like we, I had an example of someone who, whose score was artificially lowered because previous teachers had cheated, but she didn't cheat, you know? And so she was punished in, in a weird way, but in a very predictable way because of previous cheating. And it was part of this political teacher accountability, no child left behind and race to the top stuff. Much more about politics than about math or science, but that's how that works. So, you know, in terms of resonating with people, that example resonates, I think, highly with educators who had to live through this teacher accountability campaign, which was not itself accountable. I'd say that that spreads to anybody who cares about the power of unions in general, because it was essentially a tool that was used against teacher unions. And if you look around at which states are still using the value-added model for teachers, which is the name of the model, it's happening in places that where they have a governor who hates unions. It's pretty simple. But it was used in the sort of, again, with the authority of mathematics. And when teachers asked, well, can you explain this score? Why did I get such a bad score? They were told, you know, you wouldn't understand it's math. <laughs> You know, one thing is interesting when you say that, too. I I mean, I lived in in Washington, D.C. on the outskirts at that same time, and I cannot remember the idea of an algorithm driving this kind of entering my consciousness. It it seemed like there was, you know, I remember all the, you know, the back and forth and a lot of the 
or I should say the controversy about it. But I, I think at that point in time, even as somebody who would, you know, have the capacity to understand it for sure, I don't think it, it really cut through the fog for me that this was a, you know, algorithm gone terribly wrong. And maybe that's because of the way it was presented. Thanks for saying that because it's, I believe you, because the marketing isn't focused on, hey, does this algorithm work? That's not how they market it. Let me give you another example from this week, which is, you know, the first week of September. Like, you know, did you hear about the about California getting rid of cash bail? I did. I did. I didn't look much into it, but yeah, yeah go you, ahead. That's great news, right? Because cash bail sucks. But do you know what they're replacing it with? No. An algorithm. <laughs> oh, jeez. That is very much along demographic lines, asking questions like, did you come from a high crime neighborhood? Are you friends with gang members? Did you get suspended in high school? Do you have a job? Have you ever been married? Questions that are proxies for race and class. Now, I personally am not particularly familiar with the algorithm that they're going to use in California, but I know it's an algorithm, and I know about the class of algorithms that it are related to it, and they're very troubling. And I, I'm not no fan of cash bail. Don't get me wrong. But there are ways to get rid of, of ridiculous pretrial detention systems without resorting to racist algorithms. And I will add, even if I'm wrong about it being super racist, where's the discussion about whether the system that they're replacing it with is fair? And it goes exactly to your point. I'm sure you heard about the teacher accountability movement in Washington, D.C. with Michelle Rhee as the superintendent of schools, I'm sure they talked a lot about holding teachers accountable, but I'm pretty sure they didn't spend much time, as you point out, like explaining how that system actually works and explaining the evidence that it works and it's fair. Well, you know, one thing that you you mentioned a couple of times during the book, because I I know like you related to the one we just talked about, you know, about algorithms, about recidivism and the justice system. I mean, there's a a few different examples you, you put in there. It does seem like a lot of these algorithms were designed to fix some perceived injustice and actually trying to do a good thing, but because of the way they got implemented, they ended up potentially even being worse, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I'm not claiming that the motives were vile. They're not. I think what happens in general is people, they want to improve a system that they know is unfair because they have evidence that it's unfair. And then they, their blind spot is that the data from the unfair system is itself incredibly bad. In this case, the data comes from crime records, which I hesitate to say the word crime records because it's not crime records we have, it's arrest records. And as long as the police practices are uneven, which we know they are, then the data that stems from police practices like arrests will be biased. But then what happens is you hand over this data to data scientists and say, go at it and try to optimize to accuracy for who's going to get arrested in the future. And they do. And to be completely frank, they're predicting the police just as much as they're predicting crime. And so it ends up being this self-perpetuating feedback loop. The data is biased. You send police back to the same neighborhoods where they found crime before and they arrest more people. And then the algorithms end up being like proven right because yeah, there are still people who take drugs in that neighborhood. But by the way, there's just as many people, white people who take drugs, but we don't arrest them or, (laughs) or another way of looking at it because it's not just about low level crimes like drugs. It's like, Oh yeah. People who are addicted are still addicted. 
people who have mental health problems are still have mental health problems. And as long as we are criminalizing that, it's extremely predictable. You know, sometimes I like to imagine a thought experiment where we use these recidivism risk algorithms to like figure out where to send to allocate resources, you know, rather than where to punish people further. You know, and one thing that comes to mind too, there, there's something, one of the things I talked to Dr. Rekhavon about that I mentioned earlier is that something he says is that we don't measure enough and we don't measure early enough about a lot of the, we measure extreme events. So it, it does seem to play into what you're saying here because these algorithms are so dependent on the data that's being collected and how it's being collected that if we're, the very way we measure it is drastically affecting the outcome. So if you're, if you're not measuring all the people that are involved, if you're not measuring at all the points in the process, like, I mean, one of the examples I know he gave was, you know, measuring drug overdoses, not measuring the people taking drugs. And so if you're only measuring drug overdoses and then you, you put in a program to change that and you don't see any change, it may have changed people that you weren't measuring. Yeah. You would never know. But to this point, the algorithms don't know. The algorithms just take the data you give them. They, you, you build a model, you put it through the algorithm, and something comes out the end. The, the algorithms don't have a – they're not intelligent. They're not making a judgment call, I guess would be the right word. That's right, and it's a well-said point. Just to, if you don't mind, like go further along those lines. Like Sometimes I like to ask, what would it look like to live in a world where we actually do collect all that data, especially around crime? You know, think about all the friends you've had. I'm sure this never happened with you particularly, but like all your friends who've smoked pot <laughs> and haven't gotten arrested. Imagine if every single time anyone smoked pot, like they got arrested. It's just unimaginable. Or other crimes that we do all the time without really living in fear of getting arrested. People that might have speeded when they were younger, you know. Or something absolutely. like that. I'm not sure that's never <laughs> happened. But you know what I mean? It's hilarious to actually think about what that would look like. It would obviously need video cameras in every single room with some kind of AI that recognized crime when it happened. We don't want to live in that world. Nobody wants to live in that world. But then you could kind of imagine that, not just imagine, it's, it is a reality much more for certain people than for other people. And it's a reality for people living in projects in inner cities. Hey, guess what? exactly the people that are denoted high risk by these algorithms. So it's it's just full circle in a certain way. Yeah, and to, and to your point, I mean, you know, you give all sorts of examples across the, the board here from, you know, going to college to getting insurance to getting loans. Algorithms are being put in all part of this. So we, you know, we described the problem here, but, you know, particularly in the last couple of years since you, you wrote the book. So what do we do? I mean, because obviously algorithms are going away. I mean, they provide benefits in the sense that they, they allow us to be more effective, be more productive. But you talk about things like a Hippocratic Oath and other things in the book. I mean, after a couple of years having written the book, where, where are you at right now? What do you think we do now and in the future to start getting our arms around the problem? Yeah, I mean, it's a big question. I would say, first of all, I agree that they're not going away. Second of all, I would love data scientists to take their ethical obligation seriously, and a Hippocratic Oath is in that direction. And Speaking of that, I've seen maybe 12 different versions of Hippocratic Oath from algorithm designers and data scientists. None of them are, that I've seen, even close to being hardcore enough for me. None of them ask the question like, are you denying people their constitutional, legal, or human rights? Which is the kind of thing I actually think about. They're toothless so far. But even if they had teeth, I would venture to say, based on the experience of the country seeing Mark Zuckerberg going 
to talk to Congress a few times and claiming that he's going to have AI tools to solve the problem of fake news, which is not true. It's not going to just be up to data scientists to stand up and say, hey, I'm not willing to work on this algorithm or in this business model context because they're just going to get fired and replaced by someone else, you know? So the answer to your question is we need laws to be enforced. We have laws that aren't being enforced, anti-discrimination laws for hiring, for housing, for credit, for insurance. None of them are being enforced, but we also need new laws and we need enforcement of those laws. And I don't want to pretend that I'm holding my breath for any of this to happen. You know, one thing that springs to to mind too, I don't know, you tell me if this makes sense to you, but hearing you describe it, I know one of the problems with regulating the banking industry that's always been kind of this tension is that to really regulate the banking industry and the traders, and you had to have people that actually understood it. So you had to have people on the government regulation side that actually understood it. I'm wondering, particularly having lived in DC for years, if it's also an issue about having people on the government and regulatory side that actually understand what's going on with this stuff, that actually have the background, that actually could, you know, go that couple levels deeper in order to understand what's going on. Is that, you think that's part of what the problem is, or is it, you know, is that really necessary? That's a good question. I think it's a little bit different. I think the markets really are overly complex in a way that you have to be kind of just a nerd even to understand it. Whereas I think like anti-discrimination laws and hiring are pretty simple to understand. And a lawyer could say, well, show me how many, you know, African-American qualified applicants are getting through your system versus white applicants getting through your system who are qualified. And they could ask that question. And the answer will be, oh, sorry, the algorithm is too complicated for you to under to give you an answer. And I think a good lawyer would be like, sorry, that's not okay you have to give us an answer. And then the technology could be developed. And I think it's very, I'm not going to say easy, but very doable, practically doable to say, if you're going to use a hiring algorithm, you absolutely must be able to provide evidence that is lawful. And that right now, regulators simply aren't asking the right questions. And they're not, they don't have lawyers who are asking the right questions. And they don't have data people who are building the algorithms that can answer those questions appropriately. So I I guess what I'm saying is like, I'm envisioning in 10 years, algorithms that are being used for hiring will have automatically installed monitors that will keep track of what they're doing to make sure they're in compliance with laws. And I totally think that's doable. We just haven't been asking for them to do that. Yeah. And everyone, there's no, as you said, there's no regulatory framework that that's there to actually guide them in that way. Cause at some point you actually have to have something in place saying you must go do this. There's no guidance. There are laws. There's just no guidance for how they apply to algorithms. Yeah. When I guess one, one part of that to kind of put a bow on that, I mean, do you feel like it's risen to the public consciousness in a way? Cause I mean, at the, at the end of the day, it, what's going to drive change like that is that people actually care. I mean, they they actually feel affected. So it's weird. Like, I think the public is now aware of the mistakes that really complicated algorithms like Google and Facebook are making. I mean, Trump was talking about it last week, for God's sakes. And he's wrong on the facts, by the way, but he's right to worry about bias. The problem, of course, is that those are literally the most complicated algorithms of all. They're like international algorithms that do unpredictable things like flash crashes almost at the level of the algorithms that are so complicated that they're unpredictable. 
Whereas, you know, we could start small with like hiring algorithms or recidivism risk algorithms or algorithms that schedule people unreasonably. Those are much, much easier to handle and to make sure they're in compliance with laws and such. But those aren't the ones that are being scrutinized first. The ones that are being scrutinized first, for good reason, are the ones that are threatening our concept of truth, our concept of believable truth and information sorting and democracy and stuff like that. Those are big, big, big topics. And these algorithms are going to be the hardest of all to tame unless we decide just to stop using them, which I don't see happening. No, no. So it's been a couple of years since you, you wrote the book. It, you, you said you're working on another book. So is that, is that where you're spending your time now? Is that the next big thing? Yeah. What does the book do? When does it do? Oh my God. Don't, <laughs> you never ask a writer that. <laughs> Take it back. Sorry. <laughs> in the next five years? Absolutely. Okay, good. Next time you ask, I'll be definitely in the next five years. <laughs> well, I, I can tell you, I mean, based on, uh, based on your, your last book, I'm very excited to see what you come up with, uh, with next. And um, definitely we can, we definitely would love to have you back to talk about that in the next five years when it's, when it's done. Great. Well, thank you, Kathy. This has been a fascinating discussion and we're excited to see what you do next. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Ben. Masters of Data is brought to you by Sumo Logic. Sumo Logic is a cloud-native machine data analytics platform delivering real-time continuous intelligence as a service to build, run, and secure modern applications. Sumo Logic empowers the people who power modern business. For more information, go to sumologic.com. For more on Masters of Data, go to mastersofdata.com and subscribe. And spread the word by rating us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app.